Yo, have you heard about the Liberty City Race Rebellions? Well, let's talk about that shit then. We had to be strong. 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 Hey, we had to. I'm a mess. Hey, what's up? What's up? What's up, my beautiful people? My name is Lo, and I'm your host here at the Bistro. What I would like to call a safe space. It's a place here where we come to lounge and pass along stories of shared experiences. Ooh. I like that. I like that. Do y'all like that tagline? If y'all don't, let me know. Cause I like some feedback. I, I love I love a little feedback, child. And this week, we're talking about race. So be prepared. I'm a mess. I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. <laughs> so anyways, we're talking about a place this week that is near and dear to my heart, a place where I was born and raised. I rep this place heavy. I rep this place so heavy. Anyone that knows me, how, how much I rep this place. But this is Liberty City, Miami. And we're specifically going to be talking about the race rebellion of 1968, 1980, and 1989. And this is a two-parter, people. This is a two-part series with a very, very special guest joining us in the second part to get their firsthand experience of these events and the circumstances leading up to and surrounding them. Okay, so I want to make sure we understand the difference between a riot versus a rebellion. Um, I feel like there has been a push to change the narrative recently, specifically with the word riot, uh, as it has become weaponized, kind of. Uh, riots connotes disturbance of an otherwise peaceful society. So think of college towns, sports fans after their team wins a championship, and how those fans will destroy property and sometimes people. That's a riot. Rebellions are resistance against institutions, rulers, oppressors. Um, it connotes resistance to authority or control. Racial uprisings, specifically, excuse me, specifically black racial uprisings in America are insurrections against police and institutional oppression. Now, modern day racial insurrections not only point to the local institutions of oppression, but they also speak to the overarching societal oppressions as well. So, bitch, go ahead, grab your vice of choice, and let's spill some tea on how whiteness, once again, rears its pasty-ass head here at the Bistro. Okay, y'all, picture this. A once-thriving community, even in the face of blatant bigotry, police brutality, and segregation, is unsettled and displaced. 
all due to a decision by the United States government to partner with the exploding auto industry at the time and building interstate highway infrastructure. This was all in the attempts to connect America through travel via the automobile, making it easier for families to road trip across the country. Side note, this also began the relationship between America and its effectuation with cars, which placed public transportation in the back burner in many places. Now, the interstate highway infrastructure caused big metro cities to build highways to access the most attractive parts of the city. Well, what they considered attractive, uh, which was usually these downtown areas. In a lot of these bigger cities, black communities resided close to these downtowns. Urban city planners decided to build these huge interstate highways through the heart of these communities, knocking down entire business districts, housing developments, destroying these once thriving places. This, along with some other major events, helped shape the backdrop for the occurrences that took place in early August 1968 in Liberty City, Miami. So now I want to give a little background into the history of Miami, uh, specifically talking about uh, the black population in Miami uh, and the conditions that caused the rebellion in 1968. So Miami was incorporated and became a city in the United States of these Americas in 1896. Uh, and the majority of the black community in the city until about the 1940s and 50s uh, was segregated to what was called Colored Town. Uh, it was the Central Negro District, which later became known as Overtown. And child Jim Crow, whew, Jim Crow, police brutality, and the KKK made sure to enforce the color lines in the city until about the 1950s. Ooh, mm-mm-mm. In the 1940s, many black residents started to move out of Overtown and into other black communities in the city, um, including Brownsville and Liberty Square at the time. Um, and these cities are not too far. They're right outside of Overtown and they're west and northwest uh, of Overtown. The city had built public housing for blacks in Liberty Square back in 1937, uh, which quickly became a semi-suburban community uh, with many black people owning their homes. However, approximately 97% of the businesses and 92% of rental property in these black communities were owned by white people, many of which resided outside of the state. Uh, they usually resided on New York and Philly, Massachusetts. Uh, just think about the 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 east coast they were all pretty much located in the northern east coast area of the country this pretty much meant that the money that was being provided and going out in the community was not coming back into the community also parts of liberty square landed outside of miami city limits uh, and fell into unincorporated dade county so this is where a lot of the white population uh, resided in the area now, these white retail owners will price gouge the hell out of these black communities down here in Miami. Um, and the white landlords often neglected to make repairs to their properties. Uh, they also evicted tenants without formal notice and turned off their water and power services if they had back old rent. That's some bullshit, y'all. 
that's all some complete and utter bullshit. All of these practices became more prevalent during the 1950s and 60s during the interstate highway boom that we mentioned earlier. Just as we mentioned earlier and discussed about before with urban city planners in big metropolitan areas throughout the country, uh, the same goes for Miami. Uh, urban, city planners, urban city planners decided to build I-95 through the heart of these black communities of the city, destroying business districts and homes. Uh, Overtown was hit the hardest. Uh, they caused 36,000, 36,000, um, which is half of its population, to be, to be displaced, uh, mostly moving to the Brownsville portions and the Liberty Square parts of the city. So the migration to these areas caused the boundaries of Liberty Square to expand, merging the Brownsville Negro District and forming a nearly 15-square-mile black corridor in northwest Miami from Brownsville to Opelika, forming what is now known as Liberty City. White flight occurred when the displaced residents of Overtown started to move to Liberty City as white residents started to move south in the city. And my mama was actually a part of this. Um, back in the 70s, she was the first black person to buy a home in her neighborhood um, and in Liberty City. Um, and white residents start to move the fuck out, child. They said they did not want these Negroes in this place, child. No Negroes, no Negroes necessary. So these displaced residents caused major, major overcrowding in Liberty City um, as the area started to build multi-level concrete buildings that were insanely densely populated. Um, let me tell you something. A lot of these buildings still stand there today. Uh, they've been doing some renovation. They've been doing, <laughs> to be honest, um, some gentrification of the area the past few years. Um, but you can still see a lot of these buildings standing tall today, dilapidated, disgusting slums. This, along with the city neglecting proper sanitation in these areas due to discrimination, helped cause the slum conditions that many of the area's residents lived in. There was one other major, major driving force in the racial tensions in the city, and that was the emergence of Cubans defecting from Castro's controlled Cuba. Um, and hey, this just further the city treatment of these individuals versus the treatment of the black residents. Uh, you can see it. Clear as day, the the difference of treatment that both of these residents um, were provided. The Federal Cuban Refugee Program, CRP, uh, provided food, clothing, housing assistance, medical care, educational programs, and employment services to the defectors. Uh, meantime, local black residents had little access to any of these benefits. Uh, so, and even unemployed Cubans qualify for CRP relief payments, uh, which these payments actually exceeded the maximum county welfare aid for which native Miamians were eligible for. 
With assistance from the Small Business Administration, SBA, uh, many Cubans established their own businesses, uh, helping to make the Cuban community a self-sustaining and prosperous community in the city. And that is till this day. Uh, Little Havana, Little Havana, excuse me, Little Havana um, in the area. We have Kendall uh, that have big Cuban population. And you can see the difference of those communities versus uh, the black communities in the city. So in contrast uh, with with the uh, the Cuban defectors um, getting all of these benefits, uh, especially the the SBA loans, uh, the black community received little to no of those funds. Uh, in 1968, the Hispanic population in Dade County received more than a million dollars in loans versus only the $80,000 received by the black residents. Come on now. Come on now. And we come to see all of this play out on a national scale as well as the political landscape was in a time of change and transition um, and racial tensions in the country had reached a peak. Child, we'll discuss all of this and the events of the race rebellion after the break. Okay, now, 1968, here we are in the midst of a war that many believe we shouldn't be having the Vietnam War, um, and the major protests that came with it. And this is a presidential election year in which we had one political party in flux due to said war and a myriad of other reasons, child, the Democrats. And then we had the Republicans attempting to reestablish and reinvent themselves, running on the law and order platform to quote-unquote restore order in the country uh, due to all the racial unrest and political protests and rebellions that's been going on all decade. Mind you, this includes a crackdown on the big consumer drug use boom in the 60s amongst baby boomers. Um, And side note, we later learned that these quote-unquote war on drugs were code for what I like to call war on colors because this basically gave free reign for police enforcement to disproportionately target black and brown communities. Not to mention that we also have an independent candidate, Bama's own segregationist governor, George Wallace, who's famous for his speech that concluded, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. He really wasn't reading the room, child. He was not reading the room. And we're still knee deep in the civil rights movement, women rights movement, queer rights movement, all of that at the time. And, and, and let's not forget 1968 was the year of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the biggest figure of the civil rights movement at the time, um, occurring in April of that year. So it's with all of this swirling around that the Republicans chose Miami Beach to host the Republican National Convention in early August. This is key. This is really key because at the time, Miami was the only major city that had not had a race rebellion. So seemingly on the surface, racial tensions in the city seemed A-OK, seemed fine. Side note, a bitch love a good side note. Uh, This surface level, quote unquote, ignorance is bliss rhetoric is a constant theme throughout whiteness and American history. 
at this time, Miami Beach was more isolated uh, as there were only a couple of bridges to reach the island from the mainland. And these said bridges could be lifted to prevent entrance and exit. Uh, another reason why Miami Beach was a good place to host uh, the RNC was due to the fact that Florida's governor, Claude Kirk, was believed to be one of, if not the top candidate to be Richard Nixon's vice president. So now toss all of these ingredients into one big pot. The local ingredients uh, facing Miami's black residents, uh, and then on top of the national ingredients uh, that's occurring at this particular time. Once something that was just simmering is starting to boil and it's starting to boil over. Okay, now we're getting to where shit is about to hit the fan, y'all. So a few days before the RNC, a few black organizations in Miami came together to form a rally to occur on the same day and time as the RNC on August 7th. Um, the event was going to be located at the Power Vote building in the heart of Liberty City on 62nd Street. And this is key because 62nd Street um, is truly the heart of of Liberty City, um, and today is known as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. So these groups included the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, CORE, which is the Congress of Racial Equality, uh, SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and other small organizations and local organizations in the city. So y'all, August 7th comes around. The rally is a peaceful success so far. Um, it's, they had around 200 to 300 um, protesters. Um, then a group of white reporters attempted to enter the black-only event. Uh, most of the reporters left without any trouble, but there was this one reporter that refused to leave and had to be physically kicked out of that motherfucker child. So... I know how Liberty City <laughs> niggas are um, <laughs> from firsthand experience. So I can only, especially during now, especially during that time period, I could only imagine. I could only imagine um, <laughs> how they kicked his ass out, child. So still, even after them kicking out that that reporter that refused to leave, the rally was smooth selling. It was peaceful. Um, but then Miami PD caught wind of the removal of that white reporter and they overreacted and sent heavy, heavy, heavy enforcement to the scene. So this is key because Miami PD was also known for their unjust un, <laughs> un treatment of black people, uh, especially Miami's chief, uh, Walter um, Hetley's law and order approach and stop and frisk ordinance that targeted young black teens. So any of this sound familiar, y'all? Does any of this sound familiar with anything else that's been going on in the country? At this point, the black youth are over it. They're so over the bullshit. So they started to exchange insults with the police um, and started to throw anything they could find at the police. But shit truly, truly, truly hit the fan 
when a white motorist with the George Wallace for President bumper sticker tried to drive through the area and attempted to pass by the Power Vote building and all hell broke loose. Let me tell you something. He really tried it. He really tried it. Because people started to hit his car with anything they could find. Uh, and they caused him to crash into another car. And he fled on foot, child. He was out of there. He said he was not about that life after all. Once he fled the scene, a group flipped his car and set that bitch on fire. It was a whew, it was a wrap. So for several hours, people rebelled, looted, and burned stores along 62nd Street, targeting white-owned businesses. Uh, officers tear-gassed the area several times, and by 10 p.m., local officials and Governor Kirk had come to the scene to attempt to bring peace. After speaking with local black leaders, they agreed to meet again the next morning to continue discussions. Now, Thursday, the next morning... Everything is okay. Um, Liberty City is still tense, but people are still people are, are peaceful right now. Um, they want to give the local officials and the governor a chance, and their and and their their local black leaders a chance to just discuss to see if they could come to terms with things. So about three hundred or so spectators showed up. Um, they were just patiently waiting for um, that um, for Governor Kirk and the local the local officials to show up. But guess what? They never showed. They sent their adversaries in their place instead. And of course, the local black leaders wasn't having that. You don't say that you're going to come there and then send your whatever people instead. No, no. You're the one we need to talk to. You're the one that can make shit happen. So as the word of the canceled meeting spread, chaos ensued, child. More than a thousand people had joined the rebellion, which now turned physical, destroying property and injuring people. So Miami PD asked Florida Highway Patrol for help, who sent a special riot van and 75 state troopers who used a modified version of an inset controlled machine to spray the area with tear gas fog. I'm going to say that again. They used a modified version of an insect-controlled machine to spray the area with tear gas fog. This only dispersed the crowd for a little bit, uh, but once they reassembled, Miami PD fired a volley into an alley where they thought they saw a quote-unquote sniper child. Once gunfire ceased, Two people were dead and another teenage boy severely wounded. There were no weapons found in the vicinity. How many times have we heard this? How many times have we heard something like this, guys? Later that night, a third unarmed quote unquote sniper was also killed by a Miami lawman. So after the first shooting, Governor Kirk gave Dade County Sheriff E. Wilson Purdy the option to use the National Guard in which he invoked. Uh, this sent 80 militiamen and 200 sheriffs in two wings placed at opposite ends of the disturbance zone on 62nd Street. They marched towards each other's dispersing the crowd. After two hours, both sides met in the middle of downtown Liberty City and the rebellion was over. Three people had died. At least 32 rushed to the hospital with injuries, including six with gunshot wounds. 200 arrests were made. 
Liberty City remained under martial law for the next four days. And child, while all of this was going on, the RNC didn't seem to notice as little to nothing was mentioned regarding the uprising that was less than seven miles away. These events in Liberty City was not only the precursor for the events that occurred next month at the DNC, Democratic National Convention, but they were also for future rebellions in Liberty City in the 1980s. We're going to further discuss these events in the 1980s in part two of the Liberty City Race Rebellions. Again, I'm Lo, and thank you for stopping by the Bistro this week. Y'all stay safe in these streets, and until next time, deuces. Hey guys, please remember to follow at the Bistro podcast on all platforms. Subscribe and rate. Toodles!